Chapter Ten of North Pole Voyages by Zaharia A. Mudge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten: The Escaping Party. Having, as has been seen, provided for all the contingencies of our journey as well as circumstances permitted, we moved slowly down the ice foot away from the brig. The companions we were leaving waved us a silent adieu. A strong resolution gave firmness to our step, but our way was too dark and perilous for lightness of heart. At ten miles' distance we should reach a cape near which we expected to find open water, where we could exchange the heavy work of dragging the sledges for the pleasanter sailing in the boat. This we reached early the second day, but here we experienced our first keen disappointment as far as the eye could reach, was only ice. Before us, a thousand miles away, was Upernavik, at which we aimed, the first refuge of a civilized character in that direction. As we gazed at this intervening frozen wilderness, it did indeed seem afar off. Yet every man stood firm through fourteen hours of toil before we encamped, facing a strong wind and occasional gusts of snow. After this, the shelter of our tent and a supper of cold pork and bread with hot coffee made us almost forget the wind, which began to roar like a tempest. We looked out in the morning after a good night's rest, hoping to see the broken floe fleeing before the gale, giving us our coveted open sea, but no change had taken place. We had no resort but to vary sledging. We carried forward our freight in small parcels a mile on our journey, finally bringing up the boat. We took from under a cliff of the Cape the boat Forlorn Hope, which Dr. Kane had deposited there. It was damaged by the falling of a stone upon it from a considerable height. Peterson's skilful mending made it only a tolerable affair. Thus wearied and baffled in our efforts at progress, we returned early to our tent and slept soundly until three o'clock in the morning, when we were aroused by shouting without. It came from three Eskimo, a boy eighteen years old and two women. The boy we had before seen, but the women were strangers. They were filthy and ragged, in fact scarcely clothed at all. The matted hair of the woman was tied with a piece of a leather on the top of the head. The boy's hair was cut square across his eyebrows. One of the women carried a baby about six months old. It was thrust naked, feet foremost, into the hood of her jumper, and hung from the back of her neck. It peered innocently out of its hiding-place, like a little chicken from the brooding wing of its mother. They shivered with cold, and asked for fire and food, which we readily gave them, and they were soon off down the coast in good spirits. These visitors were only well started when Hans rushed into our camp, excited and panting for breath. He was too full of wrath to command his poor English, and he rattled away to Peterson in his own language. When he had recovered somewhat his breath, we caught snatches of his exclamations as he turned to us with, Smithson Eskimo no kut! No coot, all same dog, steal me bag, steal Nelligak buffalo. The fact finally came out 
that our visitors had been to the brig and stolen, among other things, a wolf-skin bag and a small buffalo-skin belonging to Hans, presents from Dr. Kane. Hans took a lunch, a cup of coffee, and continued his run after the thieves. The ice had now given away a little, and small leads opened near us. Loading the boat, we tried what could be done at navigation. But the water in the lead soon froze over and became too thick for boating, while yet it was too thin for sledging. So after trying various expedients, we again unloaded the boats and took to the land ice. But this was too sloping for the sledges, so we took our cargo in small parcels on our backs, carrying them forward a mile and a half, and finally bringing the sledges and boat. Bonsal had, on one of these trips, taken a keg of molasses on the back of his neck, grasping the two ends with his hands. This was an awkward position in which to command his footing along a sidling, icy path. His foot slipped, the keg shot over his head, and glided down into the sea. Coffee without molasses was not pleasant to think of, and then it was two hours after our day's work was done, before we could find even water. Our supper was not eaten, and we ready to go to bed until ten. We slept the better, however, from hearing, just as we were retiring, that Bonsal and Godfrey had recovered the keg of molasses from four feet of water. The next morning we resolved to try the flow again. It was plain we could make no satisfactory progress on the land ice, so we loaded first the small sledge and ran it safely down the slippery slope. Then the large sledge, Faith, was packed with our more valuable articles. Cautiously it was started, men in the rear holding it back by ropes. But the foothold of the men being insecure, they slipped, lost their control both of themselves and the sledge, and away it dashed. The ice, as it reached the flow, was thin. First, one runner broke through. Now both have gone down. Over goes the freight, and the hole is plunged into the water. Fortunately, everything floated. A part of our clothes were in rubber bags and was kept dry. All else was thoroughly wet. No great damage was done except in one case. Peterson had a bed of eider down, in which he was wont snugly to stow himself at night. When moving, it was compressed into a ball no larger than his head. It was a nice thing, costing forty Danish dollars. It was, of course, spoiled. So rueful was his face that, though we really pitied him, we could not repress a little merriment as he held up his dripping treasure. Seeing a smile on Dr. Hay's face, he hastily rolled it up into vad, and, in the bitterness of his vexation, hurled it among the rocks, muttering something in Danish, of which we could detect only the words Doctor and Satan. Our situation seemed gloomy enough. The men's courage was giving way, and one took a final leave and returned to the advance. Yet we pressed forward. We were not long in readjusting the load of the faith, and met with no further accident during the day. But our fourteen hours' toil left us six more hours of ice travel before we could reach what seemed to be a long stretch of clear sea. Hans returned from his pursuit, having overtaken the thieves, 
but did not find about them the stolen goods. He proposed to remain and help us, but we could go no farther that night. We encamped and obtained much needed rest and sleep. We were awakened at midnight to a new and unexpected discouragement. Mgori and Goodfellow arrived from the advance, bringing a preemptory order from Dr. Kane to bring back the faith. We could not understand this. We had been promised its use until we reached the open sea. We had only one other, which was very poor and utterly insufficient for our purpose. We were sure it was not needed at the brig. What could the order mean? But there it was in black and white, so we delivered it up, and the messengers returned with it on the instant. This journey of Godfellow and Magari was a wonderful exhibition of endurance. They had worked hard all day. Having eaten supper, they were dispatched with the message. They were back to the brig to breakfast, having travelled in all to and fro thirty miles without food or rest. Our sledging, almost insufferable before, was more difficult now. Peterson exhausted his skill in improving our poor sledge with little success. We made about six miles during the day, gained the land at the head of Force Bay, and pitched our tent. We had shipped and unshipped our cargo, and had experienced the usual variety of boating and sledging. Several of us had been broken through the ice and been thoroughly wet. Old rheumatic and scurvy complaints renewed their attacks upon the men. While the supper was cooking, three of the officers climbed a bluff and looked out upon the icy sea. To our joy, they reported the open water only six miles away. With a good sledge, we could reach it in one day's pull. With our shaky affair, it would take three. Indeed, it seemed a hopeless task to make at all six miles with it. Such was the situation when our supper was eaten and we had lain down to sleep. Its solace had scarcely come to our relief when Morton's welcome voice startled us. He had come to bring back the faith. How timely! And then he brought also a satisfactory explanation of its being taken away. Dr. Kane had been informed that a dissension existed among us, and that the sledge was not in the hands of the officers. The next morning, the good sledge faith was loaded, and the men, now in good spirits, made fine speed towards the open sea. Morton pushed on after the thieves. Late in the afternoon he returned with them. He had overtaken them where they had halted to turn their goods into clothing. They had thrown aside their rags, and were strutting proudly in the new garments they had made of the stolen skins. Morton soon left with his prisoners to return to the advance. We did not reach the open water until midnight. Everything was now put on board the boat, and we sailed about two miles and drew up against Eskimo Point, pitched our tent on a grounded ice raft, and obtained brief rest. In the morning, Riley, who had been sent to us for that purpose, returned to the advance with the faith. We packed away eight men and their baggage in the forlorn hope. It was an ordinary new London whaleboat, rigged with a mainsail, foresail, and a jib. Her cargo on passengers on this occasion brought her gunwale within four inches of the water. 
but for five miles we made fine progress. Then suddenly the ice closed in upon us, compelling us to draw the hope up upon a solid ice raft, where we encamped for the night. Near was a stranded berg from which we obtained a good supply of birds, of which we ate eight or for supper. In the morning, while our breakfast was cooking, the ice scattered and a path for us through the sea was again opened, and we bore away joyously for the Capes of Refuge Harbour. With varying fortune we passed under the walls of Cape Heatherton, and sighed the low lands of Lifeboat Bay. There, as has been stated in August 1853, Dr. Kane left a Francis metallic lifeboat. Could we reach this bay and possess ourselves of this lifeboat, a great step would have been taken, we thought, toward success. For a while all went well. Then came the shout from the officer on the lookout, ice ahead. We ran down upon it before a spanking breeze, and got into the bend of a great horseshoe while seeking an open way through the flow. We could turn, neither to the right nor left, and we were too deep in the water to attempt to lay to. The waves rolled higher and higher, and the breeze was increasing to a tempest. Our cargo, piled above the sides of the boat, left no room to handle the oars, if they had been of any use. There was no resort but to let her drive against the flow. John sat in the stern, steering oar in hand. Peterson stood on the lookout to give him steering orders. Bonsal and Stephenson stood by the sails. The rest of us, with boat hooks and poles, stood ready to fend off. The sails were so drawn up as to take the wind out of them. Peterson directed the boat's head towards that part of the ice which seemed weakest, and on we bounded. See any opening, Peterson? No, sir. An anxious five minutes followed. I see what looks like a lead. We must try for it. Give the word, Peterson. On flew the boat. Let her fall off a little off. Ease off the sheet so, steady. A little more off, so. Steady there, steady as she goes. Peterson, cool and skilful, was running us through a narrow lead, which brought us into a small opening of clear water. We were beginning to think that we should get through the pack when he shouted, I see no opening, tight everywhere, let go the sheet, fend off. Thump went the boat against the flow, but the poles and boat hooks in strong steady hands broke the force of the collision. Out sprang every man upon the ice. No serious damage was done to our craft. Our first thought was that we were in a safe, ice-bound harbour. But no, see, the flow is on the move. We unshipped the cargo in haste, and drew up the hope out of the way of the nips. The stores were next removed farther from the water's edge, the spray beginning to sprinkle them. The whole pack was instantly in wild confusion, ice-smitting ice filling the air with dismal sounds. But it was a moment for action, not of moping fear. Our ice-raft suddenly separated, the crack running between the cargo and the hope. This would not do. A boat without a cargo, or a cargo without a boat, were neither the condition of things we desired. But as the ice bearing the boat shot into the surging water, 
it was evident no human power could hinder it. Yet divine power could and did prevent it. Just that hand, always so ready to help us in our time of need, and seeming now almost visible. The boat's raft, after whirling in the eddying waters, swung round and struck one corner of ours. In a minute of time the hope was run off, and boat, cargo, and men were once more together. Soon the commotion brought down a heavy flow against that on which we had taken refuge, and no open water was within a hundred yards of us. End of chapter 10